So our scripture reading today is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And I was joking with uh, Rich just before the service that, well, this part wasn't a joke, but I was, uh, I was feeling like a bug come over me midweek. So Thursday, I was not feeling very well and, uh, and started to worry that I might not be able to be here on Sunday, and I thought, wouldn't that be ironic that we would have a sermon titled, The Rich Fool, <laughs> preached by Rich the Fool. <laughs> so, so there you go, no, uh, and even, so even as I had uh, thought over that joke, I thought, no, that doesn't work, because I'm about to explain to you in this passage, like, what exactly a fool is, and Rich as all of you know, is no fool. Uh, a fool is a person who would seek to live their life with no regard for God. And uh, of all the things we can say about rich, and there are many, uh, a man who does not want to live for God is not one of them. So, so it's, a, it's a familiar passage to some of you, a familiar parable maybe to some of you as we get into it. But before we do, let me ask you just some questions. And I want... I'll need to see your hands, so you have to raise your hand if, you know, if this is true for you. So if I were to offer you $10 million, there, see, perfect. It's a lot of honesty right there. I offer you $10 million, no strings attached, no taxes, would you take it? Show of hands. Look at you all. Excellent. Seems smart. I don't believe you. Uh, did you not raise your hand, Ron? You're not, you just... Uh, Listen, it's your pastor. There's nothing to be skeptical about. It's your pastor. I have it. It's going to be okay. Uh, I mean, I don't have it like, let's not change how we vote on the budget next year. I have it. But so, all right, now let's say I, I attach some strings. So I'll give you $10 million, but today's your last day. How many of you are taking it up? Also, like, you don't get, like, the $10 million disappears with you. So, like, you get $10 million, but this is it. This is, it's today, and then it's over and gone. Anyone? I know, there's some of you, I know. That. <laughs> yep. Okay, $10 million, so I forget that string. Let's say $10 million, but you don't get to see your family again. Anyone taking it? Oh, see some hands. So there's some... Saw some fast hands there, yeah, all right. But not as many, right? Not as many. What about, uh, all right, so $10 million, but you don't get to see your friends again. You guys have, like, very low view of your friends. I wish, I wish the camera would catch this so that your friends could see how much you love them. All right, and then reword the first question, just slightly reworded. $10 million, but you don't get to wake up tomorrow. I don't mean like you get to sleep in on Monday. I mean like you don't wake up. So, all right. So I want you to like think through this. Now, some of you did raise your hands over some of these things, but now think about this. I offer you $10 million without strings, and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. But every one of you, or at least most of you, just told me that your life is more important to you than money, that your family is more important to you than money, your friends are more important to you than money. 
even waking up on a Monday morning is more important to you than money. And so then the question is, do we live like that? I mean, I heard one guy ask the question about you wake up tomorrow morning. You can't wake up tomorrow morning. He said, like, first he asked the question, I give you $10 million. How would you feel? Like, would you be happy? Would you be excited? Would it kind of put a little jump in your step? And then he said, but I give you $10 million and you can't wake up tomorrow. And now you don't want it. So now waking up tomorrow is more valuable than the $10 million that made you happy and put a little spring in your step. Shouldn't the fact that you wake up tomorrow morning, shouldn't every morning when we wake up put a little spring in our step? Because we just said it's worth more than the $10 million that was going to make me super excited. Money does weird things to us, doesn't it? Uh, and it hasn't, it's not a 21st century issue. Uh, in fact, we run into it right here in the first century. While Jesus is in the middle of giving instruction and encouragement, instruction on hypocrisy, encouragement on, you know, God's going to provide for you, God cares for you. Uh, and in the middle of his instruction, he's interrupted by a fellow in the crowd. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So depending on the, the translation, the English translation you use, uh, that warning at the very beginning is translated either uh, covetousness or greed. When Jesus says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, or some of your Bibles may say, be on your guard against all greed. Greed and covetousness are uh, really... They're, they're the same issue, just along a spectrum 
of possession. So greed is my heart toward the things I already own. It's a selfish heart toward the things I already own. It's like these things are mine and I deserve them. Covetousness is the same heart, but it's toward things I don't own. Uh, That's not mine and I deserve it. And so it's the same issue. It's just a matter of whether I have what I'm greedy toward or I don't have what I'm greedy toward. Uh, the, the outline's pretty simple, just kind of looking at greed and covetousness. Greed is, is subtle. Greed is a liar. And yet greed can be mortified. Um, why do I say greed is subtle? Well, I don't know if you've noticed this. I have noticed that uh, greed is one of those sins that you see in other people long before you see it in yourself. Uh, Greed is one of those things that you recognize in others, but you don't really see it in yourself. Uh, The you know a lot of times we approach we approach money uh, almost the same way we approach driving on ninety five. And I've I've told you this about you know so many times, and I'll try to say it without you know getting your kids in trouble on what words they say. Uh, We all know they've heard worse than this from their dads on 95, though. Uh, But, you know, the definition of a fool and a moron on 95 is the the fool, or actually it's an idiot, an idiot and a moron. So the idiot is the one who goes flying past you. You're like, look at this idiot, because he's going faster than you. But the moron is the one who's keeping you from going as fast as you want. And you come up behind him, you're like, look at this moron. And so you have found the one sanctified speed for 95 and everyone faster than you is reckless and everyone slower than you is not helping. (laughs) And sometimes we approach our our attitude toward finances that same way. Like if you make a lot more than me, wow, you are one of those greedy people, aren't you? You love the filthy lucre, uh, which is from the King James. I just like, everyone likes to say filthy lucre at some point. I encourage you to say it over supper today. Uh, If someone doesn't make as much as me, though, well, they're probably just, you know, God just hasn't blessed them the way he's blessed me. Maybe they're just not, they're probably not that hardworking. I mean, if I can make this, surely anyone could make this. And so we have this idea that like, oh, I've found the sanctified income. Greed can be very subtle. You know, it's not very often that someone at care group says, hey, pray for me. I've been feeling really covetous this last week. Because like, we, we just have this assumption, especially in our society, like our whole society is built on coveting. Like ad campaigns only work by telling you there's something you don't have and your life is horrible because of it. And, uh, you know, some of us are old enough to remember when commercials actually told you about the product and, like, and the benefits of owning the product. Now the commercials are about, you know, they're about your life. Your life, you will be happier. I mean, Matthew McConaughey, you know, just, just listening to him talk, and I'm like, I got to buy a Lincoln. 
We know that we're supposed to set our hearts on things above. We're not supposed to be so taken in by stuff, but stuff is part of God's creation. And the difficulty is that some of the stuff is good. You know, it's, it's good to get a raise. It's good to have a car. You know, the new device can be fun. But he goes back to uh, years ago in Genesis, talking about the idols of the heart. And the phrase that we came up with was, uh, when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, you've done a bad thing and it ruins everything. We can take these good things from God, but then when we turn them into little gods themselves, we've ruined it all. Greed is the enemy of grace. Like the very definition of grace is undeserved favor, unmerited goodness. But greed, greed ruins grace because we look at our lives and say, well, I deserve this. This is mine. It's mine to have. No one else deserves it. Greed or, or coveting is also uh, the enemy of satisfaction and contentment and even happiness. Just always wanting more, always wanting the next thing. Coveting or greed is a, is a backdoor sin. So I think it's interesting that the Ten Commandments are framed with the first command, you shall have no other God but me. And the last command, you shall not covet. Because in one sense, you can't commit any sins without breaking the first command. Like you can't break any of the other nine without first looking to something other than God for your satisfaction for your delight. So the first thing you have to do is not have God as the sole focal point of your life. But in the same way, coveting is sort of that backdoor into other sins. Like once we allow coveting into our heart, it just leads us, it's like it's the gateway sin. Even James writes about it. He says, why, why are you fighting? Like, what causes all these arguments and quarrels among you? And he says, isn't it this? You want something, and you can't have it. And so you murder. You desire for something, and so you hate, and you harm. He says, you adulterous nation." Coveting and greed just leads us into many other sins. Paul talks about the the subtlety of of coveting in Romans chapter 7. He says, listen, I, I wouldn't have understood the law if it hadn't been written out, or at least I wouldn't have understood my own sin if I hadn't heard the law. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. 
But then sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, he's not saying that the law caused coveting. It's just once God says, hey, you shouldn't have an unhealthy desire for things, well, that just kind of exposes how many unhealthy desires we have for things. He warns about it, and Paul warns about it in in 1 Timothy. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This has been uh, completely misquoted over and over to say, money is the root of all evil, which is not what Paul said at all. He said, the love of money. And then they said, so then we misquote and say, okay, so the love of money is the root of all evil. It's like, no, again, not what Paul said. He said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not all evil, but all kinds of evil. The love of money. He even says, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The subtlety of greed that will convince us that this next thing is okay, or this decision is okay, or the way I've treated this person is okay. Even the subtlety, uh, the way it plays out in this man's issues, this, this man that comes to Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's just the, it sounds like a righteous desire. Uh, every time I read it, though, it, to me it sounds like, I don't know if this happens in your house, but in our house, like when there's a food that everyone likes, uh, do you ever hear that, that weird accusation or that the, the demanding question, who ate the last, and then you fill in the blank. Who ate the last bowl of Fruity Pebbles? That always happens at the beach. Uh, who ate the last bagel? Who ate, who ate the last bowl of your, who, who ate the last donut? Who ate the last cookie? And, well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and as a parent, like, the problem is, like, I probably modeled that accusatory question for my kids, but once it was coming out of my kids' mouths is when I realized the irony of the question, because the answer is simple. Well, apparently not you, because, and you would not have gone to the cookie jar and said, oh, there's only one left. I probably shouldn't eat that. Someone else might be in a much greater need of cookiness than me today, and I will leave this last cookie. This is not the same sin as leaving like a teaspoon of milk in the carton and putting it back. Just drink the last of the milk and throw the carton away, please. But those are parenting issues. That's not about greed. But this guy, like he's like, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I want what's coming to me. And so Jesus, Jesus addresses it. It's interesting. Jesus says, who, who made me judge and arbiter? 
And then most of us reading it probably go, uh, God, I'm pretty sure uh, you are the judge and arbiter. And he's like, yes, but as important as this sounds to you, this is so petty. This is not what I am judge and arbiter for. That's, this is not what I've been sent for. Jesus has been speaking to the crowd about hypocrisy. He's been speaking to the crowd about trusting God, trusting that God values them more than even sparrows, that they, can, they don't need to be anxious. He's been speaking about focusing on God's power, even speaking about don't be so focused on your life and the end of your life here. Be focused on what is your standing with God in all of this. Like the man can't even see it. All he's hearing is, you know, my brother should be here to hear this sermon. That's always a, that's always a sign, by the way, that maybe there's something in the message for you when, when all you hear is, boy, I wish such and so were here to listen. Boy, this sermon would really have helped my husband. Uh, so just maybe just back up and say, okay, wait a minute. Maybe that's... Maybe I should listen to the Holy Spirit too and see if maybe he has something to say to me. So Jesus tells this parable. And in the original Greek, it's, it's very obvious the issue of the parable. Uh, the man has an eye problem. Not like an eyesight problem, but an I-me problem. There are 54 words in the parable in Greek. 18 of them are I, me, myself. 18 times. Sometimes it's said in you, but that's because he's so self-centered, he's talking to himself. The land of of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You relax, you eat, you drink, you be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The problem is not that the farmer has been successful. The problem is not even that the farmer is wealthy. It's not even a problem that he has built bigger barns. The problem is his focus on himself and his, his misunderstanding of the purpose of God's blessing. Ralph Davies, in writing about this uh, particular parable, he points out uh, just five false understandings that this man has in this parable. First, he has a false estimate of blessing. He just assumes that 
the purpose of the blessing is just so that he can gather more and more. He has a false estimate of his time. He says, I'm going to be great for many years. And God says, really? Because today's your last day. He has a false sense of purpose. He thinks the whole purpose of the blessing is that he can take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Relax. You have arrived. Like the whole purpose. And like, and even in Christian homes, we have this mindset that the only reason you're working so hard is so that you don't have to work so hard one day. Like this notion that you get to this point where you can just, you can put your feet up and relax and never have to worry about it again. And so you kill and you strive and you, you clamor and you ignore your family until you get to an age that you've forgotten your family. And now you can relax. He has his false sense of purpose. He has a false sense of control. It's all mine. It's all for me. Whereas God says, so whose is all this going to be? You have no control. And he has a false sense of value. Like he's so consumed with stuff, he has forgotten to care one bit for his soul. Again, as I said at the beginning... When God calls him, you fool, he's not saying he's a poor investor or that he's, a, he's bad at the work that he does. He's saying you are living your life with no regard to God. The fool either explicitly denies the realities of God or implicitly, implicitly lives as though God doesn't matter. And God says to him, today your life will be demanded of you. It's interesting, it's a, it's a banking term that God says to this man in this parable. He says, uh, today the loan of your soul and your stuff has come due. So now what are you going to do? These things you've acquired, whose will they be? Because the God of stuff will always let you down. Stuff always breaks. Stuff always gets uh, replaced. There's always a new and improved for everything. We got a a car for Amy a couple of years ago, and uh, we're very satisfied with the car. It's a wonderful car. And then we replaced my car just this past year. In my car, like, it knows me. Like, if I walk up to my car, it will unlock for me. Like, I don't have to do anything. When I sit down in my car, I push a button and it starts right up. Amy's car is so antiquated, you have to put a key in the ignition and turn it. It is the most, I, I don't know if I've ever suffered as much as a human being as when I have to realize my key is still in my pocket when I'm driving her car. It's silly, isn't it? The things that we can't live without. 
that we didn't know even existed five minutes ago. What do we do with this greed? So I said greed can be mortified. What, just stop it? Do better. Try harder. Here's your application. Don't be greedy. Let's pray. Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy? Oh, I didn't know. I shouldn't be doing this. Now that you've, you've made an excellent case, I will stop forthwith. What is the cure for greed and our covetous hearts? And I know it sounds like you seem like, all right, we all know what you're going to say the cure is, but it really is the cure. I mean, I mean, if the gospel is the cure for all of our sin, then the gospel has to be the cure for greed. Like my understanding of the gospel or my misunderstanding of the gospel is what is allowing greed to continue to fester in my heart. So what am I not understanding about the gospel that if I had a better grasp, it would help me hate my greed and help me seek to kill the greed that is trying to kill me? Well, Jesus hints at it. He says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. He says, you need to be rich toward God. How do we live a life rich toward God? Well, it's believing God when he says that, listen, if I clothe the grass with more splendor than Solomon, I'm going to take care of you. It's taking our anxieties and our worries and our concerns about the future straight to the only one who knows the future. As Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. You're understanding that, that the gospel is a pure, undeserved generosity from God. Like we did nothing to earn. We did no job, no task. There's no wage of the gospel that, that you earn. In fact, the opposite. The wages that we earn are death because the wages of sin, as Paul says, is death. Sin earns death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. An understanding of the gift of eternal life I have received, not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it. It gives me a different perspective on the stuff of this world. In Hebrews 13, as he, the writer begins to wrap up his talk, one of the applications he gives is, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me?
You know, it's interesting how, how so many times these passages on money and greed, contentment, uh, they get twisted into a, therefore, we should take vows of poverty. But that's never in Scripture. In fact, uh, early on in the life of the church, the, the church depended on the wealthy. I mean, even in the book of Acts, Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. And it's her home that housed the church of Philippi. Like she, she had a home big enough to start the church in. And she wasn't condemned for having a house big enough. She was thanked and praised. And when Paul writes, he says, Greet Lydia, in whose house the church meets. It's interesting that this passage comes up in our study of Luke the Sunday after we voted to buy a church building that I mentioned we might need more funds than just the general fund to make that happen. I'm very grateful for God's odd providences in these things. How do I approach the gifts that God has given me? Do I see them as gifts that are here for me to just relax? Or are they gifts for me to use to serve others, to serve the church, to serve my neighbors? There's nothing wrong with bigger barns. Just what am I doing? Am I, is it a blessing to others what God is blessing me with? It's good for us to consider this passage here at, at, the, at the communion table as we reflect on and meditate on the richness that Christ set aside in order to care for us, in order to provide for us. And often we, we look at some of our attitudes toward our lives or toward our stuff or toward things and just ask ourselves, what if the Son of God had that same attitude while he was in glory, in perfect, uh, perfect communion with his Father? Like if he'd had that attitude, would my salvation ever have been accomplished? And then that helps us kind of put those attitudes at least into check so that we can uh, say, well, perhaps this isn't the healthiest attitude. That passage at the end of Hebrews 13, when he quotes, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That, that's a quote from Psalm 56, 11, in which it says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And I found it, just slightly ironic that a passage quoted in Hebrews about, hey, don't be so concerned with money, is the passage we have printed on our money. In God, we trust. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your generosity toward us. 
Even in all the ways that we approach generosity, you did not. We so often look for, uh, look for some kind of, do, did they deserve it? Do they earn it? Have they put themselves in the position they are? What, what does it look like? Will I just be contributing to their, their folly? And yet your generosity toward us uh, probably daily contributes to our folly as we have been saved from our sin and yet we continue to turn back to it. And it does not stop you from sending your son. And it doesn't stop you from paying the sacrifice for us, Jesus. We thank you that your generosity is so holy. We pray that you would give us hearts that reflect our Savior's heart to be generous toward one another toward you, toward our neighbors. That our view of the goods that we have would be a view of thanksgiving and amazement at how you care for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.